Hello and welcome to Anything That Moves, a Maniv Mobility podcast for the mobility curious. I'm your host, Mayor Dardashti. As a mobility-focused VC fund, we get to have all kinds of interesting conversations with founders, industry leaders, and other ecosystem players. The Anything That Moves podcast is our chance to bring more people into these conversations about the future of how people and goods get from here to there and back, faster, cheaper, and safer. Before we get started, the team at Maniv wants to hear from you. If you have feedback, or if you are the founder of a company in the mobility space, or even if you aspire to be one, please reach out to us directly via the form on our website, www.maniv.com. That's M-A-N-I-V.com, and click Get in Touch. Hi, everyone. We're here today with our very own Olaf Sackers. Uh, Olaf, I'll, I'll allow you the, the privilege of introducing yourself and also talking about why you're here. Uh, but before we start, I actually wanted to um, play a little game with you that I like to call SPAC or Fiction. Uh, I'm, I'm going to name you a company, and you either have to tell me whether it is a SPAC uh, or uh, whether I made up the name of the company. Uh, I, I think that in these, in these times with the craze of especially EV companies being eaten up or merged with, with SPACs, you know, let's, let's test your chops. So I think it's we're going to get started you, here. If you ask me the name of the spec that's listed rather than the company it's acquiring, I feel like at least. Oh, oh I know this is much harder. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> that would be no fun, Olaf. <laughs> <laughs> it would still be hard. I feel like there are a lot of you know EV companies that have been discovered by specs that were kind of low profile before. Here we go. You ready? Uh, no, but I'll do it anyway. Okay, here we go. Social Capital Hito Sophia Holdings 3. SPAC or fiction? Fiction. Nope, that is the SPAC that recently acquired Clover Health. Okay, continuing on. Spartan Energy Acquisition. Uh, SPAC. Correct, that is the SPAC that acquired, or acquired merged with Fisker. Uh, okay. Vecto at least IP. I'm getting at least I'm getting the the uh, that's the Nicholas back. So that's two out of three, and both of them are the EV ones. Okay, keep going. Listen, I think you're doing better than I would have before I googled all these. Jaws Acquisition Corp. Fiction. No, wait. It is in fact a spec. I, I and know. It is I know. Still I know. on the hunt. It okay. is still on the hunt. So you are forgiven for not knowing it exists. Okay. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Pivotal Investment Corporation. It's a SPAC. Correct. That, that is the SPAC that merged with XL Fleet. Okay. Finally, Responsible Capital Allocation Corp. I feel like there aren't any fiction ones yet. The pattern is they're all existent. So it's a SPAC. Incorrect. Responsible Capital Allocation is one that I made up because it seems like it does not exist. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Uh, continuing on, the, the, one of the reasons that that we have you here, aside from the fact that you're in house, I, like you, I like that you had the the sound effects to go with that. So that was what I spent the time on <laughs> in the last twenty minutes. It takes a surprisingly long amount of time to find a sound effect I won't get sued for using. The, 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 <laughs> they're very good sound effects, though. I think you know, feels like I'm in Thank a game the, show. This I think is we should, consider, we should consider converting this whole podcast just into like a, a game show. You'd be surprised how many of these I have done. This is the best that open source internet has to offer. Um, uh, so I want to I want to talk to you a little bit about um, your July thirtieth piece. You, you wrote a, a piece on July thirtieth on Medium uh, and whatever other platforms we decide to publish on. 
um, entitled, Is Tesla a Tech Stock or a Fashion Product? Now, what I don't want to do today is spend too much time doubling back on the article itself. And if you'd like to read it, and I do recommend you read it uh, to all those listening today, it's available at maniv.com slash Tesla. Um, I, I'm going to try and summarize it in two sentences. Um, and, and you can tell me if I butchered it or not. Um, but I think after that, we're going to try and move further into you know some of the ideas around the piece. Um, but before I summarize the piece, I, I want to read just the opening paragraph um, to magnify or just to emphasize the magnitude of the question uh, that that led into the piece. Um, so I, I'm going to I'm going to read the opening paragraph. Tesla recently became the world's most valuable car maker. That's pretty shocking, as Morgan Stanley has pointed out. The company generates zero percent of auto profits, one percent of auto OEM revenues, and has yet yet has thirty percent of sector market cap. So this this is the opening challenge here: is how do we what do we make of of uh, of Tesla's market cap? Now I'm I'm going to try and summarize your article, and you tell me if I'm doing justice to it, and then we're gonna we're gonna you know dive deeper together. So your your base your base argument here is that there are two ways to view this situation. How do we understand the value of Tesla stock? Either it's a luxury good, and fundamentally people are buying an experience or a feeling or an identity, or we can get into what that is, or the value can be justified as something of a bet against the incumbents of the industry. Is that is that a fair summary? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the the bet against the incumbents is a is also a bet that Tesla's ability to to digitize its product, as in use software, in order to improve the experience over time, is a competitive advantage that is only going to grow, and it's going to be hard for existing car makers to make up that difference. So th- that's that's kind of, I mean that that was the that's the core argument I'm trying to make in the piece. But I think the the point about fashion product, etc., is is obviously true to some extent in the way we've seen retail investors get excited about Tesla. But it's also I think something about the brand and the allure of Tesla. There's something about storytelling, and we see this in our work with startups too. That creating something that's hot and exciting is about telling an exciting story. Um, and Tesla's also able to do that. Um, so I, I think those are the two sides that I was trying to bring out about the company um, through this piece. So I actually, I'm really glad that you're emphasizing um, this this uh, this first point about, first of all, the fact that if Tesla is a luxury good, um, it's it's not a totally binary situation. Um, but I, I'm, I'm curious, actually, because most of your piece uh, trend, you know, tends towards the second option, just because I think it's it's a more interesting side to argue. Um, and, and, you know, um, to build a, a bull case on some level for Tesla's valuation. But can we spend a minute again, like you just you just did on that first option, uh, w- which is, again, the minority of the piece. But I, I think it's actually a, quite a compelling argument um, that that there's something emotional, there's something uh, visceral or something simply that has to do with the, the, the fickle nature uh, or, or the uh, um, the dynamics of retail investment. First of all, I think one of the, the, the better insights that, I, that I've heard from you since I joined Maniv what, was a more fundamental uh, acknowledgement that investment in general, uh, to some extent, is a luxury good, regardless of stock. Can, can, you, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Um, so I guess there's, there's a, a certain aspect of, of investing where you're, you're just thinking about financial returns. Um, but I think also, you know, and I think this is especially true for retail investors. I think if you want to beat the S and P 500, you've got to really dedicate a lot of time, um, so to speak, labor 
into the task of understanding the stock market and understanding how things work, what drives value, etc. Because these these indices um, are, and and you're seeing this with companies like Vanguard that are able to, uh, you know, you can just invest passively in an index, and that's I think allowed a lot of growth in in people's savings uh, without that much work needed to be done uh, because the indices tend to be very reliable. So if you want to beat that, right, you don't have to just make money. You have to outperform the market. You have to have an incredible amount of knowledge uh, about the market. And this is also true, I think, in private markets. So the work we do on venture capital um, and, and other kinds of private market investing, it's extremely difficult to be a better than average uh, investor. Um, so to the extent that one is investing not only uh, to beat the market, as I think many retail investors are doing, the question is why? Um, and, and in the piece, I kind of highlight two um, theories of that, or I, I allude to them. It's a little hard to flesh them out fully. But the first is that it reflects something on you to be an owner of Tesla stock or Apple stock. And I think people are often very proud of, you know, they, they'll buy uh, for their kids at a certain time, a stock certificate, or they'll, or they'll keep these certificates, or they'll say, you know, I invested in Amazon at the IPO, that there's some so, sort of pride or reflection on you by being a backer of a certain kind of company. It's especially when it's a story stock, a company that has a good story. And the second is, I think that it's fun. You know, it's like betting, you know, it's it's hard to be a professional better on, on horse races or, or boxing fights. You really have to understand a lot about the dynamics of this, but people get a lot of enjoyment out of this, and I think both of these aspects play into um, into Tesla. Um, and I, I also note, like with COVID and and sports betting kind of going off the table for for a period of time, I think there's been a lot of transference of people from one market into uh, the the retail investing market as like this kind of you know free time hobby activity. So it's not just about the utility of investing and making financial gains based on the work labor that one invests into it. It's much more like a leisure activity in which the pleasure of you know playing this game uh, is part of the utility that's derived. Uh, and therefore, you, you might not care that much about returns and you might prioritize um, other aspects of the company or the stock beyond just, you know, does this uh, passive unit of incremental value in the company, this representative of a certain portion of the company, accurately refre- reflect what we anticipate to happen uh, in the future in terms of revenue, sales, and growth. And just to clarify, before our uh, extensive listener base, you know, starts sending me death threats, uh, you know, <laughs> um, don't laugh too hard, Olaf. It's a little insulting. <laughs> uh, the um, you know, the fact that that you know sentiment plays a role in in Tesla's valuation, it's not an indictment of the company, uh, and it's not and it's not a claim that there's anything fraudulent uh, at play, right? You know, some of this has to do with the nature of the company, the nature of its founder, the message and the vision it projects. This, just to clarify, we're, we're not even if we if we acknowledge that there's an element uh, of of you know Tesla as a luxury good, and you give the example of a, of a of a handbag, that's not an indictment of the company, right? Well, I, I think there's a question of, you know, does it actually have that fundamental value? Because over time, there should be a correction for that. And, you know, these uh, game playing investors should be, you know, wiped out if they're if they're basing it on inaccurate information or hype 
Um, so, so there is some aspect of that correction, but there's also the opposite effect in play, which is that you know it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If everybody believes that Tesla is going to be able to use capital, you know, in, in more efficiently, or is, is going to dominate the market, then it has access to capital at a much lower rate, and that's the reality right now. Tesla, you know, is is looking to make uh, investments and acquisitions um, increasingly, and is also able to build more manufacturing capacity because the cost of capital to them is much lower than to Ford or GM or any other car maker. Um, so that becomes a competitive advantage, even if it's built just on storytelling. And the same is true for startups. And I think this is an important lesson. If you're able to create a sense of, of inevitability around your startup, even if it's built to some extent on quote unquote fiction, you know, or something that doesn't fully exist yet, in some sense, that fiction becomes reality. Um, because your engineers that you're trying to hire that buy into that story and believe it will want to join your cause and your mission and your and investors that believe in the story will start putting capital down. So even though nothing real exists in the present, the ability to paint a picture for that future um, is is very important um, and can and cre- can create a certain kind of reality. Um, and I think Elon Musk as a figure has been able to put himself, He's kind of leveraging an arbitrage, which is that I think our leaders and our and even leaders of, of most companies, um, but also on the political level, don't really have such an exciting vision for you know the future we're aiming towards and building towards. Um, there is no you know clear great power struggle like the Cold War uh, anymore. Um, there is no you know Apollo or Moon. Uh, project that's happening that's that's backed by the government in quite the same way, but yes, Elon Musk, who doesn't only you know build electric cars in order to save the planet, but he's also building rockets to go to Mars and tunnels you know to completely change traffic flows and brain linking devices, and so there's this kind of aura around him that he really has a vision, and you can agree or disagree with that vision, but it's it's really like quite a big one and and it's fleshed out. And so I think there's a, there's a desire uh, in in people, you know, looking at things to invest one's time, one en- one's energy, uh, one's kind of purpose into um, for employees, for investors, for for all these different, um, you know, for journalists who want to write something interesting. Uh, Tesla is just a better thing than most things out there uh, to focus one's attention on, um, and and many of those reasons are good reasons. So I want to pivot a little bit away from, you know, theory one, which, as we said, is we should, you know, a paradigm of thinking about uh, Tesla as a luxury good um, and, and, you know, viewing or trying to justify or not justify the, the valuation on that basis. Yeah, the, the, um, stock, the, sec- the, stock, the stock ownership of the stock is a luxury good. It's like holding a handbag in your hand is holding Tesla shares. Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to I want to transition now to your second argument, uh, which is a little bit more more. I mean, they're both very nuanced points. It's a little bit of a different approach. It's it's kind of a quasi, if I could say so, a quasi bull case um, for for uh, Tesla's fundamental valuation. Uh, and and the argument that you're fundamentally making uh, is that there is something sustained, sustainable um, uh, about Tesla's approach and differentiated. Um, that can drive long-term value. And, and that's on some level, you said, uh, software-defined functionality. And we can talk about how, I, I, the, the piece really talks more about how does one 
develop software-defined functionality? How is it architected? What are the benefits of it? And to those who are interested, it's a 16-minute read on uh, on Medium. If you have 16 minutes, spend them, maniv.com slash Tesla. Uh, but, you know, I, I want to go a step beyond that. Um, you know, assuming that that software-defined functionality and, and, and everything that's around it um, is, number one, seemingly an, a semi-existential threat uh, to incumbents, or at least that's a signal we're getting from the markets, um, and a real opportunity for Tesla. Um, c- can you talk a little bit about um, how incumbents either are or aren't banding together to address this with the common standard? I mean, so many of these pieces that are central to developing this capability are shared between car makers whether that's silicon, whether that's physical parts, uh, whether that's, uh, you know, digital infrastructure, uh, just because of the the tier one and OEM relationship. Is this, first of all, do you see this as a shared problem? Um, and if so, do you see that the, the incumbents coming out with a shared solution? So maybe it's helpful to take a step back and uh, just explain how I got to writing this piece, because, you know, Tesla's this, this story stock, and it's a useful thing to frame things around. But the original impetus was actually thinking about the incumbent industry. Uh, and Tesla was a helpful way to frame this argument, the second argument, uh, which was, I think, kind of the core idea, which is this idea of network architecture. The cars have this network of computers within them, that this network has evolved over time um, through the ways in which cars are made. Uh, so it's kind of like this Lego block, block approach that you've got, you know, you need a new function, you add a computer, uh, like a small computer uh, into the car, and now you've got like a hundred in in high end vehicles all over the all over the vehicle, and it's it's created these real challenges. So that the the impetus for writing this piece was was thinking about this particular problem, um, and the need uh, on the incumbent industry side to do something in response to it. And I think Tesla and the incredible rally it's had um, is just a way to frame. Or it's it's highlighted, I think. In, in some sense, that the market doesn't believe that car makers are in a position to really respond to this challenge and that the companies like Tesla and, and a few other newer startups uh, that are emerging are better positioned to become you know, software mobility companies that are able to leverage software and, and software is always built on silicon um, in some way that gives sustainable competitive advantages. So I think there's a lot of nuance within that, and I try and crack that open in this piece. You know, the different ways in which you can get a competitive advantage built on top of silicon, using software, using an operating system, leveraging developers, uh, addressing cybersecurity, all, all those different aspects. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, that's kind of the the key opportunity. But the challenge on the industry side, on the on the incumbent side, is how to respond to this because I think there's been a, not, a realization, you know, already for a few years with the onset of autonomous vehicles, uh, and even in in the kind of mid 2000s there was a realization with electric vehicles that the business was going to change and that new technologies were coming, and and things need to happen. Um, but and in some ways a lot has happened. I think you've seen, especially U.S. car makers like GM making acquisitions of of Cruise. I think also with VW you've seen. Um, kind of an understanding that that big changes need to happen. And at the same time, I think you also have um, real difficulty um, in those changes permeating to all levels of the organization. Uh, and this is a classic kind of disruption uh, situation where 
even w- when a company knows that it's in an industry that's that's changing rapidly and being disrupted, it's not always possible to respond to it because the culture that has allowed you to succeed as a company, um, you know, in the case of automotive, this very hierarchical organization, reliability at the center, um, you know, all those aspects that have allowed success in the past are now the threats to allowing the company to succeed in future because all those different instincts and tendencies that, you know, push towards quality and reliability are what push back so hard when Tesla releases an auto, uh, autopilot update over the air uh, and it doesn't feel completely safe uh, to other car makers. But it means that the Tesla can iterate faster um, or that Tesla is, you know, putting um, you know, new functionality in through software updates in various other ways, building an infotainment system vertically integrated, uh, allowing certain functionality to be software defined. All those things, I think, are much harder when you've got an organization where the org chart um, is kind of reflected in, in the structure of the vehicle. And so to get different parts of the vehicle to speak to each other also means you need to get different parts of the org chart uh, to speak to each other. Um, and, and those cultural challenges, I think, are really the challenge, um, which isn't to say that there's no way for, for car makers to get around it. Um, but I think we are really seeing big uh, obstacles um, and challenges in responding to Tesla. And, and that's definitely what the market is, is reading here. Do you see this as a problem that can be solved um, on some level uh, through some combination of technology and politics? That's to say, um, you know, there could be some uh, uh, common standard on software or on software-related uh, uh, um, uh, both silicon and uh, and other infrastructure points that just make it easier for these uh, for these parts to talk to each other by default. Yes, and and actually, um, one of my kind of side projects is to try and convene a conversation like this amongst kind of the key decision makers in a whole lot of different car makers and suppliers uh, on this particular topic. Um, this piece actually resonated a lot in Germany. Um, I also got it translated into German, although I think you know, somebody pointed out to me that anybody who needs to read it should be able to understand it in English. Um, but that that in Germany, where the automotive industry is you know, the largest employer, a core part of the economy, you have this fundamental threat that is coming not only from Tesla, but from a lot of the value chain of vehicles through you know the electric Vehicle value chain is like it's like forty percent of the, the value um, of the of of EVs comes from the battery and, and other components around that is being shifted away from Europe and towards East Asia, China and, and Korea and Japan, um, and so you're going to see these huge disruptions, I think, and you're already seeing layoffs, you know, at companies like like Conti and Daimler, and I think there's more to come as a result of both the both the recession, but also this, this pressure that, that's coming to, to shift, um, you know, on, on the technology stack. So, yes, I think dramatic things need to happen. I think car makers need to find ways uh, to leverage their scale and, and collaborate. The way it is happening now is you have at least two clear kind of coalition groups that are forming. The one is around VW and MEB and trying to centralize the software there. 
although there have been a lot of challenges and changes in organization, this has been weakened by the labor unions. Um, Zenger, who, who runs, who was running car software, all got, got pushed down. So that's one group. And then in, in the US, you've got GM with the LTM platform that Honda has joined onto. Um, and, and with VW Ford has at least a, a limited collaboration around its um, commercial vehicles in Europe around the MEB platform. So you're seeing these, these alliances uh, form to some extent, but it's one car maker pushing a platform and then others kind of banding together with it. And you also have the FCA, uh, PSA um, uh, merger that's happening, uh, which is another way to, to increase scale. Um, but you're not seeing uh, as much common standards. You're seeing some suppliers like Aptiv offering a vision through what they call SVA, Smart Vehicle Architecture, of a next generation software platform. Um, but there's an opportunity to basically create uh, at least some common building blocks of a network architecture that can be shared amongst car makers um, that can build a kind of equivalent of Android um, that you have in mobile phones. That if you're a, a startup trying to introduce technology into a vehicle rather than trying to integrate with many different platforms, and there's lots of layers to how one integrates and what kind of technology that might be. But the reality is most startups that are creating innovation in this industry have an extremely difficult road to partnering with incumbents because there's a lack of standardization and there's a lack of separation between software and hardware. Um, and so that that frustration, seeing it play out, you know, firsthand through many of the companies that we work with um, and the challenges amongst incumbents to integrate new technologies and, and, uh, and software and innovation um, seems like a fundamental challenge um, and something dramatics needed in order to, to adjust. So I'm glad you brought up the uh, the tie-in of this network architecture challenge to uh, to automotive facing startups because that's that's our bread and butter and and I think that's where we've seen this most directly and most granularly. Um, I I, I want to be ginger here. I want I want to walk ten, you know I want to walk I want to be sensitive here. Um, but can we be a little bit more granular about what the challenge is uh, and you know what's the scope and what's the outline of the challenge uh, for a startup that's looking. Um, to integrate either software, software-enabled uh, uh, features uh, into an incumbent OEM's uh, uh, cars. What is the challenge of integrating that software into the car? Yeah, and we can and we can talk on whatever level of granularity you feel comfortable. I don't think that giving a specific example would be appropriate, but I think it would be helpful to go a little bit deeper uh, because I, I think that a lot of, if I'm not wrong. Uh, a lot of the strategic energy in the room uh, for automakers has been in the direction of what you might call open innovation, of at least you know at least pushing in the direction of integrating technologies from startups to compensate for for what isn't being generated in house. Um, and, and I want to understand what does it look like? What are the challenges if you are a, a, a digital startup trying to work with an incumbent OEM? Where where do those challenges start on the network side? Um, and, and what, again, maybe you started fleshing this out already, um, but what's the magnitude of the problem? What's the shape of the problem? And, and what might a solution look like um, uh, specifically as it relates to startups and not necessarily only to internal innovation? Yeah, so like, like I kind of touched on, there's a lot of layers to this and a lot of complexity. Um, not sure how much detail to go into, but... For instance, there, there's some core aspects of the vehicle um, that um, 
as an initial outset, it's it's hard to hard to change and hard to integrate things like over the air software updates and cybersecurity. Um, so we've we've got companies that that work on on both of these things, um, and it's 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 core to the car makers, um, but there isn't usually a, a common set of of standards. There isn't even one uh, OS or software that's running on various ECUs. So implementing these kinds of technologies. Um, partly they're needed as a result of this, but it's also challenging. But that's kind of core and fundamental. Then you've got the infotainment layer um, where you've got all these different uh, operating systems and there's a consolidation around uh, Android for automotive and then things like CarPlay, which are just mirroring uh, the phone's functionality um, within uh, the car. Um, but you know there are very few companies that have bothered to build an app uh, for all sorts of different cars because you've got a very small market that you're addressing if you're building something for BMW, but it's a lot of work. Um, so that that aspect of infotainment where like Tesla's got things like dog mode or you know cinema mode or games you can play in the car, there's no equivalent of that um, amongst uh, the, the other car makers on their infotainment systems because... The operating system doesn't allow that flexibility. And then just finally, to clarify, we're not saying that dog mode is Tesla's you know killer app. We're just saying that there's no opportunity here for you know outsourcing creativity here. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I'm not, like nothing in and of itself is a killer app. I mean, there's some things like that the iPhone can do. That I mean, ironically, the iPhone's called the iPhone, but it really sucks at calling. Um, and you could point to different things that different consumers you know want from a product like i think on the apple watch it's the uh fitness tracking and stuff like that 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 for most people draws them to it but i think lots of people have different reasons for being excited about things what's magical about a tesla is the sense that it gets better over time and so dog mode is you know it's a bit of a silly example but at the same time it's it's also kind of neat that you can create something that um that introduces new functionality that wasn't possible before. Uh, you know, like it is a problem if your dog is stuck in a car and, and might die. Some consumers will really value that. Um, but it's more the, the novelty that you can you can add new functionality, etc. Um, and and that feeling of surprise and delight, I think, is you know the kind of magical power of technology that uh, creates this kind of brand story and excitement, um, and and that. I think like the incumbent industry is almost antithetical to it. there's very little software-based surprise and delight and and the value of you know really nice cornering or uh, exterior vehicle design uh, has been downplayed as I think more and more people are looking at vehicles as things to use for commutes um, or there just isn't the same excitement because I think smartphones um, have usurped uh, some of the role. Just to finish the the third the third piece um, in this schematic, but it, there's there's more I think uh, to unpack. But I think it, it should kind of help complete the picture, which is that autonomous functionality um, also needs to integrate into the vehicle and control brakes and turning and and various other things. Um, and and also that um, relies on a vehicle architecture that is robust um, and and software definable and and all of these um, these efforts have been siloed so every team that's developing autonomous software um, has a relatively siloed 
um, you know, set of tools, whether it's simulation or uh, perception or, you know, the command uh, control aspects um, of the uh, actual AV driving, um, that they're all building in parallel. And then integrating with specific platforms, whether it's Waymo uh, and FCA or, or Cruise and GM, um, rather than having that stack unpacked to some extent and be more open source um, and having um, the vehicles uh, be more uh, easy to integrate this technology. A lot of these things have to do with um, uh, soft safety and, um, and, and basically being automotive grade uh, that, that different parts of the vehicle uh, need to have clear separations and you don't want it to be too easy to control the vehicle. That's kind of the fear of hacking. So doing that well um, is critical, especially because a car and like a smartphone, uh, you know, weighs like a thousand kilograms and can go pretty fast and, you know, is, is kind of dangerous if, if it goes out of control, whereas a smartphone that goes out of control, you know, c- can't do nearly as much. Um, but there is, a, I, I think in general, it's just hard um, and takes a really long time to integrate anything new in the vehicle because more and more of the engineering resources are being dedicated to playing kind of retroactive whack-a-mole. Like you change one aspect of the vehicle and every other aspect is is affected or many other aspects of the vehicle are affected because the whole protocol of CAN of, of software and cars is that all the parts speak to each other and this hardware and software isn't kind of siloed into layers which don't you know interact so much but that you get these kind of interactive effects um so i think that's becoming an increasing overhead for the car makers um a very big challenge um and there's a sense that the tesla is just doing much better at this so i think one of the the other points that um that's kind of underlined this conversation, but we haven't spoken about is, you know, you mentioned the internal hierarchies of, of car makers and the internal politics, but Tesla is also vertically integrated in a way that's really unusual for the industry. Um, you know, the average uh, uh, automaker is, as you said, basically assembling Legos. Um, to what extent is the tier one OEM relationship uh, making this problem worse? Um, and do you think the the example of, of, of the, the CAN bus um offers some kind of model for, for how the OEMs and tier ones could work together uh, to create this plug and play architecture? Um, yeah, again, like a big topic uh, to unpack. Um, I think on the tier one side, they're becoming more like tier twos. And I think you're going to see competition between you know companies like Aptive, which are, I think, forward-looking tier ones that are thinking more and more about how silicon is part of what they need to be competent in in order to stay competitive. Because if you control, I call them five times, but pieces of function within the car, you're going to need to more and more be part of the silicon, the central centralized silicon that actually defines those functions. And so you got, you got to build up towards that. Whereas the tier twos, the, the silicon makers uh, like NVIDIA, are looking to build down from you know building a, a GPU in, in the middle of the card to being able to define more and more functionality. So I think that's that's one aspect of it that you're going to see um, you know tier ones having to reevaluate exactly what the what their strategies are. Um, what was what was the first part of your question? 
the first part of my question was how much is this inevitable or how much is this a process, uh, a, a result, not of, of necessarily internal politics, but just of the, the uh, uh, supply chain of the average car, where it's a distributed supply chain. OEMs are very used to working with a wide range of suppliers. And Tesla, you know, although it does use automotive parts and is part of the automotive supply chain, is unusually vertically integrated, especially on the digital side. To what extent yes. is this just a natural output of that? Um, and is that, you know, is that, um, is that solved through the same means uh, that the internal politics problems are solved? Yeah, so two, two things that are interesting about Tesla. The one is I used a little bit of a sleight of hand with Tesla in, in making it seem in this piece that they're like super vertically integrated and incumbents are like not like almost nothing in comparison. Tesla still has a lot of ECUs um, in its vehicles, and it's working with many of the traditional suppliers on a lot of different functions. What's powerful about the Tesla, though, is that when you get to the infotainment system and the user interface there, it feels and looks completely different to other cars. And that, that is in large part because Tesla has defi- defined that whole system, or designed it, and uh, spec the silicon um, and the software and is able to do things like control the air vents, um, which I highlight in the piece, uh, where they've got this neat design um, that allows basically the redirection of air to happen just through the through the touchpad. Tesla's almost doing too much of that. Like there are no knobs in the car and there's no like heads up display or, or there's no um, dashboard like a traditional vehicle. Um, so it's almost like they've gone to the other extreme almost to make a point. Um, but they're still reliant on, on other, uh, car makers, sorry, on other suppliers in order to be able to create many of the functions of the car, because it's really hard to make an entire vehicle and you're still dependent on this complex supply chain. And the supply chain has evolved in a certain way for a reason, because, you know, these parts are reliable and, and good for many functions. So this transformation is definitely not going to happen overnight, but I think the goal was to point out the direction in which things are headed towards more and more vertical integration. Tesla is really, you know, the most important vertical integration for them is, is around the battery. Um, and that's why battery day was, was important, et cetera. That's where they have, uh, I think much better capabilities than other car makers and where they have a competitive advantage. One last point, because you, you mentioned vertical integration and culture and, and hierarchies. Tesla's, I think, you know, a weird company in the sense that it's extremely hierarchical, like Musk controls basically everything and micromanages a lot about the company. Um, and and I think, you know, people have mixed views on this, but I think many people think that that's good and it's tied to, you know, the, all the things on, on the narrative side where he's able to tweet and control narrative and, and is very, very good at that. Um, but I think also Tesla's uh, got a weakness on this front. It's lost a lot of uh, managers and a lot of talent over time. Uh, there's been a lot of executive turnover. Um, and I think it's got real challenges in terms of culture. It's got a, a burnout culture and people I know who've worked there um, have struggled in various ways. Um, so I don't think everything is is well necessarily in, in Tesla, Tesla land in terms of how the company is structured and that it's this utopian software company versus uh, what's wrong with with the incumbents? But the incumbents have real legacy challenges that are hard to overcome, both in terms of the the vehicles that they're making today that they still need to continue making, whereas Tesla doesn't have to support a legacy 
uh, business of making internal combustion engine vehicles and, and give up margin in order to transition to EVs and, and investment, et cetera. And then they've got family politics, but most of these companies are owned uh, by various uh, families that still run a lot of things, even if they're multi-generational and the families are much larger and getting consensus is harder. Um, especially in Europe, uh, the government has a stake uh, in many of these businesses, um, where, whether it's Lower Saxony's, uh, you know, representation on the board of VW or the French government, you know, messing around with Renault uh, or the Japanese government or, or whatever it is. Um, and, and then you've got the, the workers' unions where you saw in 2008 um, with the economic crisis, the U.S. government, you know, deemed GM too big to fail. Um, you know, jobs around uh, uh, automotive in, in Germany are, are very important from a political perspective. Um, so the unions have a lot of power um, in affecting decision making. And that also affects uh, how much flexibility and ability, and ability to uh, chart a new course and dramatically change direction uh, incumbents have. And, and so these are, these are all the challenges they have. Uh, but I don't think Tesla is, you know, perfect in comparison. Excellent. Olaf, thank you so much for your time. Just for uh, approval's sake, one more bell. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I, like, do we do we have another game? There, there are no more games. Uh, the good news is that means you can't get anything wrong, but it also means that's probably the last bell for you today. Um, and uh, yeah, really thank you for this conversation. If For anyone who's listening uh, who thought this sounded interesting but wants to know more background, go to maniv.com slash tesla. Uh, and, uh, yeah, looking forward to having more conversations both on this podcast and off of it. I'll speak to you. Great. Thanks. Thank you to producer Lauren Luz for making this episode happen and to Naomi Lazarov for post-production help. If you like their work and were willing to put up with mine, please rate and subscribe to anything that moves on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whichever platform is winning the podcast for this week. Once again, for feedback or to reach out for investment, please go to maniv.com and click get in touch. You can also find us on Twitter at Maniv Mobility, LinkedIn, and Medium. Thanks for listening.